And you are on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. You're listening to Behind the Lines, and this week it's Scotty in the studio. And joined on the other end of a tin can, we are joined by Penny Coth from Southern Harvest. How are you, Penny? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Nothing that I can complain too much about anyway. Um, yeah, so Southern Harvest... Uh, that, that harvest part of it sort of makes me think that you might be involved with food in some way. Indeed, indeed. So um, Southern Harvest is a regional food producers and consumers network, so across the southeast of New South Wales, including the ACT. Hmm, so you've got producers and consumers in the same organisation. How does that work? Well, the producers are sort of business members and the um, consumers get involved with um, educational activities, um, learning about farming, I guess, um, things like farm tours, and also food boxes, farmers markets, that sort of thing. So it's about connecting both, actually. Hmm. hmm. Well, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So I guess food, food, our consciousness of food, it's, it's sort of, in the cities at least, it's probably not quite the same in a place like Bungendore, but in the big cities, do you think we've really still connected with our food like when we might have been a hundred years ago? I think it I think it's slowly actually coming full circle. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, probably most of our grandparents, you know, grew up in, in in whether it was suburbia or in rural areas, growing a lot of their own food or at least some of it in the backyard. Um, because we didn't have, you know, the larger supermarkets and easy facilities um, and if we were going shopping we'd still go to the you know the butcher the baker and the well not the candlestick maker but the green <laughs> green grocer um, and so I think you know a hundred years ago we were very connected with our with our food and I think that that through the industrialization of the food system has gone totally the other way um, and most people probably have not much idea where their food is actually coming from whether it's even Australian or imported, um, but probably the last thirty or more years has seen a, a slow trend back the other way with things like farmers markets and community supported agriculture. Um, and I, I think there's a growing interest in actually, you know, understanding where our food comes from, how it's grown, and again, perhaps growing some of our own. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. But did it ever really disappear or was it just sort of underground? Oh, no, I don't think it disappeared. I think that, um, you know, there, there's certainly, you know, throughout that history, obviously, a, a sector that was, um, you know, growing food and supplying locally. Uh, it's it's the modern lifestyle and the whole convenience factor. Um, and... You know, I mean, I grew up on a farm, so I've, I guess, always been connected to food. But um, for those that didn't, you know, for people that have grown up in the cities and, you know, gone to school and uni and then work, it's like convenience. I just need food to put on the table sort of thing without, um, you know, without really wanting even to, to know where it comes from. It's just food. Mm. <laughs> So I guess that leads on to what is food? What is it really? I mean... Mm. <laughs> Nutrition. It's sort of an essence as well, isn't it? 
Um, it's funny because I think that um, there's actually been a major change even in when you look at sort of spending patterns. You know, food food was, um, I guess, before TV and everything else, um, you know, food was the place of entertainment and conversation. I mean, I guess it still is conversation, but we spent a lot more time with, with food because we didn't have all these other distractions. And now we've got so many, you know, electronic gadgets and, um, you know, TVs, phones, etc. that we spend less time together um, just conversing with people one-to-one and kind of the centre of that was food. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I guess we had a bit more time within the family then too mm. and didn't have all these processed foods available, so we had to do it ourselves. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, I, I remember my mother, well, my mother and my grandparents, you know, preserving you know, whatever was surplus, like if you think now it's obviously tomatoes, but, you know, that was just part of, um, that was just part of our way of life was having to preserve that and, you know, it would sit on the shelf and you'd have a, a big pantry. I mean, all the farmhouses certainly had big pantries because you'd preserve the surplus and that would take you through winter. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I think it's it, the industrialisation of food in terms of, um, you know, one farmer growing one crop and then it goes into a, a central distribution system and comes back to us via, you know, coals or woolies, um, but also the internationalisation of it so that we are now removed from the, the seasonality of food um, because if tomatoes aren't in season here, well, they're in season in the Northern Hemisphere and we can get them. Um, so there's a, you know, it, it's just become, well you know, a commodity <laughs> um, and it gets shipped everywhere and we give little thought to, you know, what's produced when most people don't understand the seasonality of food anymore, which is a shame. Um, there's obviously, you know, there's a group of people that still do and there's, you know, quite large groups of people that are really interested in understanding not only where it comes from but how it's grown. Um, but on the whole... We've sort of removed ourselves from that. Yeah, yeah. And and how is it grown these days? Is as a general sort of thing. As a general sort of yeah, thing. the mainstream agriculture. How do we get our fruit and veggies and grains and stuff? Um, well, they're normally grown on farms that might grow one or two crops. Um, that are sort of large. You know, they might supply lettuces through the spring season, and then they'll you know go into tomatoes or whatever and then and then a winter crop like your brassicas you know um broccoli um and they're packed up on a truck and they're shipped normally well to a central distribution point wherever that might be i don't know if it would be sydney let's say um so individual farms throughout australia would specialize now whether that's veggies or whether it's something like beef or lamb or pork um or chicken um, that gets, I guess, centralised and then comes back out on transport to your local coal. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, everything's big and everything's centralised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, that certainly makes it difficult for uh, smaller farmers, you know, even if I wanted to. Um, I'm a farmer out at um, out the other side of Bungendore 
even if I wanted to, I couldn't get into that distribution chain because I just simply don't have the quantities. <laughs> well, that's right. A small load might be one semi-trailer load or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You're talking, you know, big, big quantities. <laughs> big stuff, and that's your entry sort of production. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I often get inquiries, you know, oh, you know, I'm after six pallets of tomatoes. It's like, yep, yeah, no. <laughs> Not just offhand. I don't have one in the shed or something. No. <laughs> but, you know, there are, there's a lot of farms supplying into that model, particularly when you think sort of, I guess, the Riverina irrigation area, um, further out west. I mean, our grain crops have sort of always been done that way, but there, there are farms that, um, you know, don't supply into that chain at all. Um, and, you know... Th- at at a sort of medium scale, you could be supplying IGAs and your smaller independent sort of grocers. Um, but, yeah, it's it's tricky. <laughs> mm. Now, I guess that that could be construed as good for the, for the end consumer, if you want to put it that way, in a hip pocket sort of sense, you know, because the, uh, the big middlemen can, can dictate the prices and bring the prices... Down, down, down. But uh, how does that affect the farmer on the on the on the beginning end? Well, yes, you're right. I mean, it, it, consumers do see it that way in terms of, right, well, it's cheaper. Um, how does it affect the farmers? Well, uh, they're just getting squeezed more and more on margin. I mean, I guess one could look at the history of farming in Australia and say, well, it's never really been a profitable <laughs> business um, and, you know, very susceptible to weather and so forth. Um, it lo- it just locks them in. They're not really a farmer anymore. They're a contractor, um, you know, so they're growing lettuce for coals and they get what price they're told they're going to get. Um, and I guess that means that they've just got to... I guess, you know, cut their own labour costs and keep um, improving efficiency. So I think it brings a lot of pressure. Um, and, you know, I know people that supply, let's say, plums into into that system. And if you get a year like this year where they got heavy rain and they all get marked, you know, so spots on them, um, then, then the large chains will just turn around and say, no, we can't take it. We're taking it to the tip and we're charging you for it. Um, so, you know, there's always been, I guess, um, a level of stress in the farming community because it is susceptible to weather, but that just sort of adds that next layer on, um, and it also means, you know, they're dependent on that crop being successful. And if that isn't, then they don't have income for that period. So, um, you know, in terms of mental health for farmers, Probably not good at all. Mm, yes. Mm. Not good for the family either, I guess. Yeah. No, I mean, um, the, other, the other thing I would say with that um, system, you know, the consumers um, look at, okay, you know, cheap, okay food, um, which, you know, many people are on budget, so that's fine. But the problem, um, I guess, from my perspective, is the hidden cost within that. So... Um, if you look at cheap produce that you're buying through a supermarket, what you're not seeing is the long-term effect on our non-renewable fuel resources because that whole system is dependent on shipping stuff everywhere 
and low, um, you know, oil and, and power prices. And that's actually not long-term sustainable and it's like an externalised cost that is not currently being paid. Absolutely, yes, that's a big one. And I guess the other one is, is the cost to the soil because if a mm. farmer's completely squeezed through... Uh, through getting low prices and having a bad year and the, the bank, of course, has taken out a mortgage on the farm. So he's absolutely squeezed. And is he going to be able to give the farm a rest when it needs it? Well, that's, a, that's actually a huge issue. <laughs> and and that's, a, I mean, that's a huge issue from when we first settled this country. You know, the way that the Indigenous people were managing this country was very long-term and very, um, you know, the w real sort of appreciation for what they were taking from the land and what they were giving back to the land um, and allowing it to rest. And it was managed in a sustainable way. Um, and we've come in and applied effectively European farming methods, not only in terms of the the type of plants that we grow, um, you know, they're all sort of exotic annuals that we want to eat. Um, but, you know, also in terms of clearing and ploughing up the soil and, um, yeah, if, if, if we're getting squeezed that much on price, you're right, we can't afford to give it rest or afford to put back the nutrient that's required or even to look at... Um, you know, crops that might actually be more suitable to the Australian soils. Um, and, yeah, you're just having to put in crop after crop because, because you are dependent on, on getting what little margin you can. Yeah, yeah, which is a destructive cycle, I guess. Now, we keep banging on about soils. What's so good about soil? Soil's beautiful. Soil's life. <laughs> um, well, soil is a basis of... of um, you know, farming um, of the food we eat. It's, um, you know, it's not really about the... I keep talking about lettuce, but we could talk about beetroot. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not about... I mean, obviously, you've got the, the seed um, and you've got to water it, but the soil is what gives plants life and, and the whole, um, I guess, water-air-soil cycle is, is really what drives this whole planet... <laughs> Um, you know, soil is a, is alive, and um, if we just if we just keep um, taking from it by you know effectively you're taking nutrient from the soil when you're harvesting plants. Um, you know, if we keep doing that and keep I guess spraying pesticides and and applying fertilizers and fungicides and things, we're we're sort of killing that natural cycle, um, and and. And the soil is no longer soil, it's dead, it's just dirt. Hmm, interesting, interesting. Mm. And I guess I always find that really allied to soil is water. How does that work? Well, um, so soil should hold water. Um, <laughs> mm, and if it's dead, is it very good at that? No, it's not. It's pretty what they call hydrophobic. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you pour water on it and it runs off. That means your soil's dead. Um, yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all part of that cycle. Um, and if you, again, think about the Australian landscape as it was when um, European settlers arrived, you know, we didn't have these dams that we've manufactured. Um, we didn't have these huge incised creeks and rivers. The water um, in a really dry continent like Australia 
should be held in the landscape, so it should be held in the soil, um, not sort of trying to let it run away and push it out to sea. Um, you know, we're, we're quite hot and dry and um, even things like dams, you know, you get a lot of evaporation. So, yeah, we've just, we've again, we've totally changed the way water is managed in the landscape. Um, and in terms of its relationship to soil, if you have, um, you know, good, alive productive soil with a lot of organic matter in it, it will hold water in the soil. So you need to irrigate less. Um, you know, and if you think about the issues with the Murray-Darling system and the amount of irrigation water we take out of that, you know, that, that relationship, what we were just talking about with, um, you know, growing lots of crops and having that pressure on in terms of um, destroying the soil, well, the same because you're not because you haven't got good soil anymore, you're not holding the water and so you're having to apply more water. So we're, you know, also affecting our own water resources. Yes, yes. So so you, you say the soil's alive and I guess you could think of soil as rock dust with its various elements and, and sort of physical characteristics and stuff. What, what does life add to the soil and what what's living in there? Well, lots of, uh, I mean, I don't know the technical terms. I'm going to say bugs. There's, you know, <laughs> nematodes. There's, I mean, if you look in a bit of soil, you might see some ants and worms. And um, But there's lots of things that we can't see. Um, and there's groups that, you know, look at through microscopes at what is in soil. And I've seen pictures of those, but I've never done it myself. <laughs> um, but there's... You know, I mean, I guess it's like our, our own bodies and even on our own skin, there's probably lots of things there <laughs> um, that we can't see. But it, it's a, it has a... So these um, critters, I'm going to call them, that are in the soil have symbiotic relationships with plants. So, you know, if you've got a, a plant, um, let's say, you know, we plant a seed and that germinates and you've got the plant coming up and then you've got roots going down. So obviously there's roots and organic matter in the soil. But it's those critters that are, um, have a relationship with the, the roots of the plant in that the plant is providing them sugars and then they're providing the plants back sort of nutrients by um, eating things and pooping in the soil. Like, you know, many people have worm farms, for example, um, and, and the worm castings are, are um, really good soil additive. And so that happens naturally. Um, so there's all these, you know, there's lots of things that make up soil that, that are not just particles of, you know, sand or clay or silt. There's, there's lots of other things happening in there. Well, there should be. <laughs> not necessarily I guess once you've killed your soil and you keep on farming it's just really large scale hydroponics isn't it well yeah, yeah. <laughs> true um, yeah look seeds what do you make of seeds I love seeds myself <laughs> mm. they've got so many amazing aspects but yeah I guess how do you get that goodness out of the soil and into a form where humans can eat it because I don't fancy drinking soil tea <laughs> um, seeds are probably very underrated. Um, again, you know, historically, 
people would have collected seed, um, you know, you can let plants go to flower and then they seed and you can collect, like, you know, the amount of carrot seeds you get off a, a um, carrot flower. Um, you know, people would have collected seeds and swapped seeds and all that sort of stuff. Um, again, a growing movement. And there's actually a new group that's set up in Canberra in the last year or so, Canberra Seed Savers, which is run out of Canberra City Farm. Um, seeds are really, really important. Like if we think that oil is important or we think that water is important, well, seeds are what grow the plants that feed us. Um, and, yeah, so they're like, they're probably worth more than gold, really. Um, I don't know. You can't eat gold. Um, it, you know, they're the. I guess they're the the future of our food. Um, one of the issues, obviously, with seeds is the whole um, corporatization of it. Um, in terms of large companies wanting to patent things and produce new seed and selling us seed that we can't then grow from and save our own seed. Um, which, you know, so there's this whole argument about using heirloom and heritage seed banks and um, being able to be in control of our own um, seed future. Yes, yes. It's continuity of life, really, isn't it? It is. And I guess we'd want to, uh, want to keep that in the hands it's in rather than muck around with it as a commodity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what's the effect of all of the seeds in the world doing their own little part? What's the effect? Yeah. Hmm. It's huge. Oh, it's massive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just look out the window. Well, as long yeah. as I'm not looking on concrete. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's reproduction. Yeah, it is, it is. Mm. I like to look at it, how do you see seeds and the way they work as a sort of as a reflection and an example of how nature sort of organizes itself well it is the way na- i mean it is nature isn't it yeah. um yeah i mean plants will reproduce by themselves if you just leave them out there um and i think that what it, if you, you just left your you know veggie patch or or a bit of farmland and, and let it um, do its thing over time, what you would end up with would be, you know, what naturally wanted to, to grow there. So, you know, plants are always dropping seed and, um, you know, so whether that's our acacias or, or wattles or, you know, eucalypts and so forth, and they've each got their own, um, I guess, trigger to want to germinate, but they know where they want to be. Yeah. So it's sort of you you would end up with what would be more natural to the environment and soil and um yeah yeah, yeah I was thinking on that sort of note of the uh, the story oh, I think it's Bruce Pascoe tells that uh, the yam daisy used to be a completely different sort of plant and uh, because it was cultivated all the time but then once the sheep got in and people were thrown off the land and stuff it's just reverted back to a wild form so the the yam daisies were growing now as bush food are quite a different plant mm, yeah. Mm. well again that's you know one of the things with poor the poor sheep get much <laughs> maligned but, 
you know they're not they're not um, they're not the best animal for the for this landscape. And no. um, yeah, we have we've lost we've lost a lot of um, I guess traditional foods that we could you know still be um, cultivating quite well without destroying our landscape because of um, you know other things that we've introduced to this country. Um, I guess we can't, um, you know, we can't reverse what has happened, but we can certainly look at um, using plants and animals that are, are more appropriate to our landscape. Yeah. All right. Mm. Well, I guess um, last bit of seeds, we sort of, we're largely grass seed eaters as, as a human species, really, at the moment, aren't we? Grass seeds. Um, yeah, we eat grass seeds. We eat wheat and rice and all sorts of stuff, you know. Potatoes, oh. I guess, are an exception. <laughs> Corn. All our major foods are grass seeds. It's it's quite odd. And what what sort of I mean, you were mentioning before that there are there are crops grown in, in sort of mass amounts all by themselves and they don't have all these relationships and interreactions with other plants. And mm. how does that affect the nutrition that people actually wind up with when they start chowing down on all this food? Well, there's, I mean, there's been massive, I guess, changes, even, you know, well, in that grain sort of field. Um, what what tends to happen is that the seed companies then start trying to produce um, varieties that are, you know, resistant to whatever it is, a particular pest or rust or, you know, things like that. And they're actually, um, so they're focusing on, particular characteristics of a plant um, that aren't necessarily nutrition and aren't necessarily um, digestibility. So, you know, you look at the... <laughs> this is without a, a total scientific study. This is my opinion only. <laughs> you look at the um, rise in all of your, you know, allergies and um, people being sensitive to different things, gluten-free, for example, and... Um, I would put to you that a lot of that has been driven by the way that we have um, been controlling the the crops that we're growing for things that aren't related to our own human needs. They're related to the way the crop is grown. Um, and, you know, I know that there's some really good organic rice farmers, um, Randall's Rice, which is um, not that far from here, they, you know, don't go with all of that um, and they're, they're using totally different varieties to concentrate on that nutrition and digestibility because it's, you know, the di- it's the digestibility that is giving us these problems. Um, if we weren't growing, you know, 10,000 acres of wheat um, but instead were farming in a more natural way where you might have, you know, a range of different plants, you're getting diversity in in that growing environment and you're getting much more natural resistance um so if you've got you know if you've got a field of wheat and you get a i don't know much about growing wheat but a, a pest or disease through that crop then you know that's the whole crop um and you haven't buffered it with anything else or you're not growing anything that might naturally deter that pest or attract that, that pest to another crop um wouldn't you just sort of cover the whole thing with poison, though? Yeah, well, that's what happens. <laughs> yes, that's what happens. Uh, but that's how you kill your soil. So it's all a cycle. Oh, so the poison affects the life in the soil. Well, yes. Mm. I mean, even even if, even if you take um, 
even if you take a, a fertilizer that's sort of a here have some superphosphate, which um, you know I grew up with my father using superphosphate and climbing piles of this lovely white stuff. Sure, it wasn't good for me, but anyway, <laughs> um, if you if you take any um, sort of fertilizer like that and and dump it on a plant to give it, um, you know, to give it the nutrient that it might need to grow. What you've done is you've taken away the role of the critters in the soil and you've broken that symbiotic relationship between the plant and the soil because you've now you've now come in and gone, here, plant, I'll give you what you need. You don't need those critters anymore. I'll just feed you. So the critters all go away. Um, and now you've got a drug-dependent plant because it, the critters aren't there anymore. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You've, mm. you've broken the natural cycle. Well, I guess, I mean, farms don't only grow food. They sort of grow people and, and, and townships and community relationships too, you know. Um, and I guess that's really where Southern Harvest sort of comes in, isn't it? Yes. Um, so, yeah, we try and, I guess, connect. Because we're trying to connect producers and consumers, Um but obviously within um, localities as well. So, for example, we um, Southern Harvest runs the uh, farmer's market in Bungendore and we've just started one in Queanbeyan. Um, and certainly in Bungendore, that's been going, must be three years now. Um, it's a sort of centre for community. You know, people come along and do their shopping and then have a coffee and chat to each other and talk about their food. It's, it's almost, you know, that's what I mean by it's sort of almost come full circle. Um, you know, they're not, not even necessarily sitting there over a meal talking about food. They're just sitting there at the farmer's market talking about food. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we've found it, it really has brought a whole sense of community, not, uh, and not only between the farmers and the consumers, but amongst the consumers and amongst the farmers, you know, we'll often talk to each other about, oh, that's an interesting, you know, variety of cucumber. What's that? <laughs> you know, what grows well, what doesn't, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very interesting, very interesting. How, how does it sort of compare to, say, going to Coles or Woolies? Oh, I haven't been there in five years, so... <laughs> oh, it's still the same, don't worry. Oh, I don't know. I, I find it... Um, I it sort of does my head in walking into a <laughs> to a supermarket <laughs> with all these bright lights. Um, um, it's, it's just a totally it's just so totally different. Um, yes, I guess it's your final step in the disconnection from both uh, nature and community, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean everything's packaged um, like cucumbers packaged in plastic individually. <laughs> What's that about? <laughs> Going to sell more plastic, who knows? It's very <laughs> odd, I agree. Yes. So, um, yeah, yeah, resilience. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you get a resilient sort of growing thing? Oh, actually, no, sorry, I won't go there. I won't go there. Oh, okay. So we're, we're, still, um, we're still going with, um, with the community and, and growing people. I mean, how do, how do farms go? How do farms generally go sort of? when the farmer gets old and needs to move on because he can't farm anymore, what usually sort of happens to the farm? 
they sell it and they buy a small block in town. <laughs> yeah, well, what happens to the farm then? Does does someone usually take over and just keep on farming? Or uh, no, well, I mean, the the Depends, people the people that I know um, would be trying to subdivide off bits before they left because that's how you make money. Um, that's not always possible, but often they're sort of divided up. Like if you look out um, certainly towards Bungendore and Braidwood, there's a few large farms. By large farms in our area, I'm talking <laughs> a thousand or you know five thousand acres, which is quite small by Australian standards. But um, but a lot of it has been broken down. You know, out at Braidwood, you might have two hundred acre farms, which is about eighty hectares. If anyone <laughs> needs a different language. Um, and then coming back in towards Bungendore, you've got 100-acre farms, and then you end up at Baiwong and Sutton and their 20-acre farms. Um, so you, you can see the real relationship between proximity to Canberra and the size of the farmlands around it. Um, on a commercial scale, most Australian farmers would say, you know, older generation farmers would say that you cannot make a living off certainly less than 1,000 acres. Um and here we are with farmland surrounding Canberra that's, you know, 20, 100, 200 acres. Um, and that, that is what happens when, you know, um, old farmers want to get off the land. Well, um, you know, is there someone that wants to buy a 1,000 acres and manage it? Um, that's or, interesting. That's, uh, that's a very old sort of story, that one. In, in Ireland, um, over many, many centuries, the the, the children would wind up getting the land and they would have to divide it and they would divide it again in the next generation and they wound up with these very small blocks that weren't big enough and they had, they had to be overworked again mm. to, just to feed people and, yeah, people went hungry. Mm. I mean, there's certainly, um, you know, there, there are ways to farm small lots that don't require overworking but it doesn't feed well into the industrial food system because, you know, you to grow just 20 acres of potatoes is not going to make you a living. Um, so you need to think a bit more laterally about what combination of things you can grow on that property. But it, you then, you know, you might only have, I don't know, a ton of potatoes and, and that's not enough to supply into that food system. So then you have to look at, um, you know, supplying locally and supplying a diversity of things locally. There's nothing wrong with that from a, um, you know, farm management point of view and often that's where you end up with more sustainable farm practices where you're not just growing one crop, you're trying to integrate your animal and vegetable systems. Um, so I guess there's nothing wrong with that but it's about having those um, supply chains at a local level that you can access. Mm, yes, yes. Being able to get the, the food from a bunch of small farmers to a bunch of individuals. Mm. Yeah, or I guess, as you said before, it's very difficult for a small farmer to get into the existing chains, which, which require a huge scale just to start with. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, you've got farmer's markets, obviously, but not everyone shops at farmer's markets and, you know, it's not convenient for everybody. 
um, you know, you do have small, um, I guess, retailer, pr- provador type places. Um, and, you know, certainly some of the IGAs in Canberra take local food. You've got the ANU Food Co-op and Choker by Joe and things like that. So there are other channels into market. Um, and then there's things like um, food boxes, veggie boxes, produce boxes. Um, but it's, you know, it's a it's a much smaller percentage of the market in terms of if you looked at how many people shop at Coles and Woolies versus how many people shop at those alternative supply chains. Um, but it's also a bit of a catch-22 system in terms of, um, you know, you need the growers to supply into those alternative channels for those alternative channels to grow big enough to attract more consumers and, you know, build that... Build that um, system that is going to work with these increasingly smaller farms. Yeah, I guess once you start talking about sort of supplying Sydney and Melbourne, then, then it, it changes on scale again, doesn't it? Yeah, well, we don't supply Sydney and Melbourne. I'm only, uh, we only go as far as Canberra. Yeah, do you, reckon, uh, do you reckon, I mean, it all comes from the regions to start with. Do you reckon there's a way around the, the massive scale sort of stuff for, for feeding a whole city? Um, I don't really know. Like, you know, if I was if I was a cattle farmer, which I have been in the past on you know thousand acres, and I've got two or three hundred head of cattle, um, and that's what I'm growing. For me to supply locally, very difficult. Like, you know, um, I'm not going to be able to move the amount of meat that I would need to move locally. So my choice then would be, well, I can't run around the countryside selling into Sydney and (laughs) and Melbourne. Um, So then we're back to, well, I have to sell through the traditional livestock exchange. So I'm going to, let's say, Braidwood Sale Yards and selling live cattle. And the people that buy those cattle, sometimes they're butchers, but a lot of them are feedlot operators. Um, and or, you know, buyers from larger chains, pre- predominantly those do go through the feedlots. But um, so you're back to that central system, like just in that one tiny step. Um, so, you know, we unfortunately we've lost a lot of the farming land around Sydney, like Sydney Basin, this beautiful farming area, but, um, you know, we've lost it to residential development. Um Hopefully that won't happen closer to Canberra. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, think that, I think that in a more regional sense, and I think Canberra, you know, still... Yes, we could supply Canberra from the surrounding regions, um, but you're not going to get all your packaged processed stuff because all of that is, is um, you know, done centrally. But in terms of, um, you know, real, what I would call real food, um, fresh fruit, veggies and meat, um, I think we could supply it for Canberra regionally, um, not for Sydney, I don't think so. Hmm, hmm, interesting. Well, I mm. guess there's a lot of uh, lot of thought and experimentation to be done there. So is it is it easy, say, you've got a bunch of city dwellers with green thumbs who are really keen to go farming. They hate doing the advertising and they really want to go farming. 
Uh, is it easy for them to do that at this point? Um, How accessible is land? Well, you know, if you look at the cost of a fairly decent house in Canberra, I don't know what's your average house price. Let's mm. say, you know, at the at the upper end, would it be six? Or eight hundred thousand. Oh, if you go south of the lake, it'd probably be a million or something, just because of the land price, not the house itself. But yeah, north so of the lake, you're looking at about eight hundred. So if you took that money, you can. So basically, the way I look at it is that sort of if you're, I guess, upper middle income house prices in any major city, you could go and buy a five acre, a twenty acre, a hundred acre or a 200-acre property with a house on it for exactly the same price. Yeah, well, that's not too bad. So you can... It's a good swap. But it's not, you know, that's... that's yeah, but that's, you know, you're talking <laughs> professional upper-middle income. Yes. You're not talking entry level. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those people, yes, if they want to sell, sell up in the city and move to the country, yes, very doable. But... It's a skill thing. It's like I wouldn't walk in, although I do have a marketing background, so I could walk into an office and do marketing, but I I couldn't walk in and be an accountant. So why would an accountant be able to walk in and be a farmer? Yeah, I mean, he might not know how to build a fence or sort of do simple <laughs> things like that. So, you know, a lot of people look at farming as very, um, I guess, blue-collar. Um, it, it depends. I guess what you're farming and how you're farming. For, for for me, I find it because of the diversity of of what we're doing and trying to integrate plant and animal systems. I actually find it quite intellectually challenging, um, and, but it's good from from that perspective. So, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of learning. You know, um, people might have a few backyard chickens, and that's great. They can look after chickens, but taking that to, um, you know, growing eggs and supplying into a market, even if you're just talking about one product such as eggs, there's a lot more involved in it. Um, and, you know, you haven't got six anymore, you've got a thousand. So, um, but, you know, I think it's, so at that, um, in terms of that pricing level, that's doable. But are those sort of people that want to do farming? Well, if they are, that's great. Um, but often it's not. Often it's... Um, younger people that want to get into it um, and it you know that cost is is incredibly prohibitive yeah you're starting off your your journey with a mortgage yeah what are the what are the traditional ways around that because this has been a problem forever and there's, there's a bunch of bunch of things that people do to uh, to sort of start out can you think of any of those yeah well I mean in the olden days it would have been you know you get part of the family farm because you've grown up on the farm um, I think that there's growing um, attraction to having different enterprises on a farm. So, you know, whilst you might have um, an older farmer that's running, I guess, beef cattle or something, if you, you could come in there and, and find another farming enterprise. So whether that's, you know, fruit growing, so an orchard system or vegetables or, you know, bees and honey, that sort of thing. So um, I guess looking at complementary things that could be done on the farm or um, leasing land. Um, and if you, you know, again, if you think about our um, 
particular area around Canberra, there's a lot of people that um, have farmland that actually commute into Canberra and work um, full-time that aren't actually using the land that they're on. So, you know, there there are possibilities for leasing or um, share farming. Um, so, you know, you might be able to manage the cattle on that person's property when they're working full-time elsewhere. So there are some ways to, I guess, enter it without purchasing your own um, land, but... Yes, yes. It's, um, it's, well, I mean, it's like any, it's like any small business. It requires some investment and certainly dedication. <laughs> yes. What, what about some of the new sort of, uh, new ideas that are coming up? Are you familiar with the Aura Co-op? I have heard of them, yeah. I just haven't had time to, I know a few people that are on the board, but I haven't had time to look into it in great detail. So yeah, you'll have to yeah. tell me. <laughs> well, as a skeletal form, I hope I get it right. <laughs> it's uh, it's like a, a community land trust, so the, the, the co-op. Oh, right, it's yeah. organic okay. investment co-op, so people can invest into the co-op. The co-op buys bunches of land here and there, which is already running organic farms, and then farmers can come in as farmer members of the co-op and they farm the land. And oh, so it's sort of a, a way of guaranteeing that production, organic production land will stay in production in an organic fashion so that the soil can stay healthy. And if it gets sold, it won't be bought by some investor who brings in 10,000 head of cattle, thrashes it for two years and then sells it to someone cheap. Yes. Oh, no, that sounds like a really good idea. So, yeah, that's, that's one aspect. And what else? CSAs and that sort of thing. And there's the, the first right of uh, first right of refusal. That's always a good one. You familiar with that? No. So that's if somebody's leasing a land. Um, they could, uh, could organise with all their customers to be ready for when that farmer retires. So it's a planned refinement of the farmer who owns the land or the person who owns the land. And then... As part of the lease arrangement, that farmer or that landowner has to offer the, the sale of the land to a cooperative of the growers and the consumers so that they can buy the land if they wish. That sounds like that sounds good. Hmm, so there's yeah. a number of ways out there. Which are I good. mean, because part of the issue is that, you know, like I said, around Sydney, we're, we're losing farming land. Um, so, yeah. you know, the more we lose, farming land, the more, um, you know, the, the more difficult it is for us to feed ourselves. <laughs> we might like a nice big house, but fundamentally that's not going to ensure our longevity. <laughs> yes. So there's, uh, there's a bunch of barriers and limits. I mean, uh, you, you guys are um, allied with the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance, aren't you? Yeah, so um, is there anything going on at the moment that sort of might be limiting smaller farmers? Oh, there's lots. <laughs> yeah, right. What sort of stuff do you face? Um, so I'm actually the Secretary of um, AFSA, which is the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. Oh, that's good. You'll yeah. be able to talk well about it then. <laughs> um, it's, um, so basically um, it, it's also a, a producer group and, and consumer group um, that tries to represent smaller, sustainable farms, um, not necessarily organic, but... Um, and there's a heap of legislative changes at the moment going through right across Australia, um, sort of in waves. Uh, they started in Victoria, 
but it's to do with planning provisions. So um, I don't know the planning uh, scheme in the ACT at all, but in New South Wales, for example, you've got you know a residential block that you would build a house on in town um, and then different zonings, council zonings, through to what's called RU1 primary production, which is farmland. And there's... Um, there's some other farmlands that are in there that are a bit more restricted, but RU1 is sort of, <clears throat> you know, what yep. should be farming land. Um, and uh, so in, in New South Wales, the uh, planning provisions for um, intensive farms... Yeah, no, they're introducing a new um, state environmental planning policy to look at... Um, rural production, primary production in rural areas. Um, and it, so what they do is, you know, they um, issue out, I guess, recommendations that um, then go out for theoretically public comment on and then they go back in and they take advice and might change it again. But um, they, the current um, iteration or draft of that planning policy um, could have some pretty detrimental effects on small farms in the region. Hopefully they'll um, listen to the many submissions that have gone in, but um, their current proposal is um, quite restrictive, certainly for pig and poultry farms, um, requiring um, some setbacks in the order of 500 metres from neighbouring dwellings without requiring a what's called a development application in New South Wales, um, which is incredibly expensive. So um, that's happening almost in every state. Um, just the review of those, um, I guess, farming planning policies. Mm. Mm. So I guess... Poultry is one of your one of your classical entry points for um, for yeah. farmers without any money to come in on a lease as well because it's portable and it moves around very easily. You can take it with you if you lose your lease, and it, it makes money. Um, and poultry again, the industrial scale of poultry is just ugly. Oh yeah, and um, yeah, so that's interesting. So that's five hundred meters is a long way in twenty acre suburbia where you might be doing a lease. Well, 500 metres is just... I mean, our property is 100 acres mm-hmm. and we're, um, we're 400 metres wide and 800 long. Um, it's, so even, <laughs> even on 100 acres... Um, so if you wanted to grow chooks on your 100 acres, you'd require a development application. Yeah, which... Which you know, when you talk to council, they might say, "Oh no, that's only three hundred sixty-five dollars." But that's that's not the real cost of it. The real cost of it is all of the um, consultants that they want you to engage to do all of the you know water and other studies. Which is you know, I, I agree that we need this information if if we are um, truly doing you know, if you had a large intensive poultry shed or or piggery, then I totally agree that those studies should be done. But when you're talking, you know, 100 chickens, um, <laughs> the cost, uh, you know, I've got friends that have got a farm in um, Goulburnshire and they free-range pigs and 
so far they've spent over $15,000 trying to get their development application through. Yeah, meanwhile the bloke next door can grow GMO bloody canola and douse it in poison. Or spray as much, you know, pesticide and herbicide as he wants on his property and nobody says anything. Interesting. Why why would you do such an odd thing? (laughs) It seems like an odd policy decision. Well, no, so what they're doing is they're reviewing it Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so the problem is the current... um, they call it SEPs, the State Environmental Planning Policies. The current SEPs that are there don't really adequately um, cover or actually protect farming land. So this has come out of um, an initiative called Right to Farm. And um, so you know, I, I think that the, the, in, the correct intent is there. Um, I just think that they needed to do some more consultation, which, which they now have, um, with... Um, farmers in different areas to look at what the impacts would be and whether the, the draft um, guidelines are, you know, actually suitable. Like, you know, if you went out western New South Wales, well, 500 metres is fine, but it's not in um, areas like ours and probably most of the southeast of New South Wales um, where your property um, sizes are smaller and... Um, you know, what that effectively would mean is that, you know, we we're talking about these 20-acre, 100-acre, 200-acre properties or even five acres, they would no longer be viable farmland because of the cost of um, legislation. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah, hopefully they, they will. Just haven't thought it through, eh? Yeah, hopefully they will. Um, you know, if you look at a map where 500 metres around it, at most residential places, you know, within... Uh, 50 kilometres of Canberra, you, you wouldn't be able to farm poultry or pigs anywhere. No, no. Hmm? Well, poultry you can do, definitely, but... Uh, oh, I see, no. No, you wouldn't. Yes, brain explosion. Yep. So, mm. Southern Harvest Bioregion. Um, mm. bio, Southern Harvest is, is, is likely to get a little bit bigger than just sort of around Bungendore, Braidwood, Canberra, sort of Queanbeyan area. Yeah, so Southern Harvest um, initially came out of um, Regional Development Australia, Southern Inland, which is was based out of Queanbeyan, um, and it incorporated the areas, the, the New South Wales government areas that surrounded Canberra, effectively. Um, so that's where it sort of was born out of, um, and originally involved a lot of the economic development officers from those regional council areas. Um, even though they had intended to set it up as a producer organisation. So it ran its first couple of years sort of with those people leading it and was, um, you know, fairly much, a, I guess, a marketing um, idea for being able to identify produce from that larger region. Um, And then in, I think, around about 2013, 14 after doing some consultation with um, producers and consumer groups in Canberra and surrounding regions, it was changed to include Canberra, which is pretty obvious, (laughs) 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 Um, to include Canberra and and it also then had a lot more producer um, members coming onto the, um, I guess, 
executive committee, so it's now run totally by producers. I don't think we have any economic development members on the committee anymore. Um, so, you know, it, it ended up where it, where it should have ended up in terms of being in producer and consumer hands. Um, but, yeah, basically it covers... From if you if you look at a map of Canberra and um, then go your council areas sort of west and, and north and then south, but it goes basically from the Victorian border up to um, just north of Batemans Bay and then across through the Southern Highlands and out to Young and then back down to the border again, sort of out past Tumbarumba. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. So that's quite. I mean, looking at it on the map, it looks like it's sort of pretty much a hundred meter, hundred kilometer sort of radius, more or less, yeah. around Canberra. Mm. Do you know why they cut it off at the border? I suppose because it came out of New South Wales planning. Yeah, I mean, well, that was you know because it because it was um, Regional Development Australia. That was also the reason why it didn't include ACT because yeah. because that's a, that's a, just a separate office of RDA. So it's not Southern Inland anymore, it's RDA, ACT. Um, but it doesn't officially sit under that body anymore. Um, and so it, I, there's no reason it couldn't include Victoria. Um, but I guess the, a lot of the, um, particularly with food regulation stuff, a lot of the legislation is very different in Victoria. All of that, all of that sort of stuff, whether you're talking... Um, fruit and vegetables or restaurants or abattoirs, the legislation is very different in in different states. Yeah, yeah I guess that's a, sort of a, a good example of the barriers that you get when you're trying to organise bioregionally. Oh, yeah. And I mean, <laughs> it, I certainly know producers, you know, if you're, if you're living... If you live in Albury and you want to sell to Wodonga, I don't know how that works. <laughs> but I, I do know producers that have come across issues with licensing. I mean, we have those same issues um, in between New South Wales and the ACT. That's not streamlined either. Um, so in New South Wales, the, um, you've got the New South Wales Food Authority and in the ACT, you've got ACT Health. So for... ACT producers wanting to sell into New South Wales, then they need to register with the New South Wales bodies and, and vice versa. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's all about, yeah. <laughs> what, fundraising? <laughs> well, yeah, could be. No. Um, yeah, right, so... The uh, the original intent was sort of awareness of, of the, the agriculture of the region and... Um, mm. It's wound up focusing quite a lot around this sort of little area here. And what have you got here for the moment? You've got uh, the market gardens you mentioned. Uh, sorry, farmers markets. Uh, yep. What are what are they? Um, so we have a, a weekly farmers market in Bungendore at the Anglican Hall. Um, so yeah, it's it's only producers from that region, and it it tends to be a lot more local than that. Even um, so, we get. Uh, fruit and veggie sellers from sort of Wombong, Baiwong. We have pork producers. We have um, who else have we got there? People selling plants. Obviously, local eggs. Um, just depends on the season, sort of who's there and who's not. We have uh, native herbs. Um, so it's a, it's a small local market. Um, 
I can do my shopping there because I don't <laughs> I don't go to supermarkets. So, um, but you've got to be prepared to eat seasonally. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but we're, we're there every Saturday. So we we started off as a fortnightly market, um, and I always had difficulty with that because I didn't know anyone that did their grocery shopping fortnightly. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we're there every week, and um, yeah, it just depends. It just depends on the week who's there. Oh, we have seafood and things like that as well. They're not necessarily there every week. Um, so it's not like it's not like your um, Southside or Epic Market in Canberra. Um, we only have actual producers and only from the region. So you know you can come and talk to them about what variety of cucumber that is and <laughs> perhaps taste the cucumber. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a very it's a very different feel, but it's it's um, it's very much in tune with I guess Bungendora as a small country town or village. Um, so it sort of suits that very well, um, and you know a lot of it is about conversation. Um, you know, you can ask people what's in their salad mix, and um, you know what to do with that particular variety of celery or pumpkin or potato or yeah so yeah right so it's, it's sort of community really isn't it it is yeah, yeah it's, which you're not going to get at the supermarket no now you started this in Bungendore and you've recently opened a Queenbeam one have you got plans for say Goulburn and Cooma and all those bigger towns out west <laughs> um yeah so when we started the Bungendore one it was on the basis that we'd sort of put a little I guess road map of how to um, start and run a regional farmers market together, and um, then we actually um, were approached by council to help um, do the one in Queanbeyan, and we have had conversations with people from Goulburn and other areas. Basically, I guess what has happened over time is that the, the energy behind Southern Harvest seems to be centred around Bungadore Queanbeyan area even though we do have people on the committee, um, you know, that are from Goulburn and we have had people from Yass and other areas. Um, so to to take the farmer's market to those areas, we would just need some local energy that we're then happy to support. So if anyone's out there that wants to start up a proper regional farmer's market in their um, local town, then by all means come and talk to us because that's the sort of thing that we're happy to help facilitate. Yeah, right. So you've already done it. You know what some of the pitfalls are at least and, mm. and you, you're on the end of the phone to help out if they encounter trouble. Yeah. So we've, um, you know, obviously putting those, I guess, systems in place of, of how to how to run it because you need, obviously, producers and consumers. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. Um, that should be very useful, I reckon. Yeah. Because Goulburn's so, right for it now. Goulburn's full of, uh, full of yuppies these days, isn't it? <laughs> Cafes all over the place. It's yeah, not yeah. what it used to be. No, no it's very different. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, yeah, education. Now, mm. I guess uh, education of farmers and consumers. Uh, you guys are getting into that side of things now too. Well, we. Um, so what happened was in um, two thousand and about two thousand and twelve or thirteen. Um, a group called Permaculture Exchange had started doing um, educational stuff, mainly on 
permaculture topics, but permaculture, if you think of the word permanent agriculture, permanent culture, um, it is more than just farming. Um, it's sort of a whole, I guess, lifestyle thing. But um, it, And I had been involved in that group and, and so I had a number of other people that were also involved in Southern Harvest. And a couple of years ago, we decided to simplify our own voluntary contributions to the world um, and also, I guess, somewhat expand the opportunities for both um, people wanting to teach courses and for consumers to have access to courses. So we brought that under Southern Harvest as the education um, sort of arm. So, so courses have been run on those topics in the area since about 2013 um, with a focus on, I guess, developing local food economy but also sustainability stuff more generally in, in one's life. But we... We typically run every year um, introduction to permaculture courses, which um, a lot of people do think permaculture is just about gardening. Um, so that's sort of, I guess, the connection there. And then we run um, larger permaculture courses, which are design certificate courses. And then um, depending on who is running courses, so members, other producers would run courses or people would come up with ideas for a course and we'll find someone to run it. So we've done them on beekeeping, preserving, um, how to build a fence, uh, organic gardening um, for both animals and vegetables, um, how to run a small farm. So there's quite a diversity of, of courses that are run um, and often we do those in association with Canberra City Farm. So we'll do them at Canberra City Farm. Um, but sometimes they're, you know, out on people's farms. So yeah, that's interesting. I guess permaculture really does fit in well within the sort of twenty-acre suburbia sort of mm. realm and further out a bit as well. But mm. how well would it fit out in Junee and sort of Burrawa? Well, they should be doing more of it. <laughs> but it fits into a larger sort of scale. Oh uh, well, we've got a really good example here in Bungendore. There's a, a farm called. Um, Millpost Farm, mm-hmm. um, and they're actually down doing. Um, they've got a brand called Millpost Merino Wool. Um, so um, that's David Watson and Judith Turley, and they actually did Bill Mollison's first ever PDC in <laughs> I think wow. nineteen seventy. There's a claim to fame. Yes, and that so that for, for us that's a broad scale. Like if you think about our area, I think they're on. They're certainly on over a thousand acres. So they have. Um, you know, they have veggie gardens and chooks and that sort of stuff fairly intensively around the house, um, just, I mean, in terms of space-wise. And then they run um, Merino cheap. So yeah, definitely doable, definitely doable. Yeah. Um, it's just that the scale is different. So, you know, to manage a balcony or a backyard or a, a, a large town block in a permaculture way... Um, you know, you can see everything, it's all right there and it can be quite condensed. But when you're talking larger acreage, well, you just need to, you know, you just need to stretch everything (laughs) out a bit. Yeah, Um, I guess if you're growing merino wool, you sort of want to 
plant out your whole thing so that you've got lots of wind breaks and the yeah, sheep yeah. are all molly coddled and there's lots of water everywhere and lots of good food yeah. for them. And the farmer doesn't have to do that much because the, the sheep are just running around in this paddock full of great diverse tucker and if there's a drought there's a whole bunch of fodder trees right there which they can just lop and throw over the fence and it more sort of looks after itself than a bare paddock might is that the idea that's the idea you've got it exactly (laughs) and that's what they've you know that's what they've done at at millpost yeah so it's it's more of a design system which can be applied to just about anything correct interesting interesting and that's um and uh, well, I mean, if someone wanted to go and see Millpost, would they be able to do that? Well, we actually, interestingly, we have um, coming up the Australasian Permaculture Convergence is in Canberra um, in April. So um, the convergence itself is the 15th to the 19th of April. And we are running um, different tours to different places both prior to the convergence and following it and we do have a tour to Millpost Farm on the 14th of April. Ah, very there interesting. You go. Yeah. And then on the 15th we're having a big, there's a big um, ACT Permaculture Festival which will be at Canberra City Farm and we have Costa coming. <laughs> Costa's going to come. Costa cool. and David Holmgren who's one of the co-founders of Permaculture. Nice one, nice one. Yeah, so... You know, just uh, another thing I'm trying to help organise in my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> you have spare time. Um, nice. So there is information on that on the Southern Harvest um, website, which is um, southernharvest.org.au. Yeah, so we're running out of time a bit. Uh, we'd better just cut to this festival that you're having as well. Yeah, more festivals. Um, yeah, so we're running the Bungendore Harvest Festival which is next weekend, so the 16th um, to the 18th. So 16th is a Friday um, to the 18th of March. And uh, so there's a big festival day in Bungendore on the 17th, on the Saturday. So it'll be street stalls and live music and kids' activities and cooking demonstrations and talks and things like that. Wow, that sounds busy. Mm-hmm. And then Sunday is is farm tours to um, a range of smaller farms. So Jarabut Gully um, Organics, Karula Farm, which is my farm, um, Mama Readers, who do a lot of fruit and veggies, um, Aminia Grove Olives. So there's there's lots on on the Sunday too. It's just sort of more out on the farm. Yeah, right. Now, are there buses going out or is it self-drive? No, self-drive. Yep. Yeah, but those ones you have to book into. So most of the farm tours you have to book into. Um, so again, that's online on the Southern Harvest website. But um, there's obviously things like wineries and open um, open gardens, that sort of stuff that you don't have to book into. You can just rock up. But it's, it's all listed on the website. Yeah, and you guys do food boxes as well, don't you? Yes. So we've just started, we've just finished the first season of our food boxes which is the summer season. Um, so what that is is a seasonal local fruit and veg um, collected weekly. And normally we, we take the collections 
from the farmers market. So people would pick up at Bungendore or at Queen Bianne, and then we have an alliance with Canberra City Farm, and so you can pick up there as well. So yeah, how to get your fresh um, with a focus on organic um, seasonal veg every week. <laughs> yeah, nice. So if people want to sort of support Southern Harvest and all of these various different things that it's doing, mm-hmm. uh, doing quite well, it looks like too. So uh, how do they go about that? Um, so we've got um, individual membership on the website, um, so at southernharvest.org.au. Um, you know, even just signing up for the newsletter so that you can see what's going on and coming and supporting the farmers' markets. Um, yeah, I think just get, getting involved, come and visit us and, and talk to us and see what we do. Um, and, you know, we're fairly accessible because we do have those two farmers' markets. And obviously at the Harvest Festival, there'll be a lot of information there on, you know, what we're doing in terms of education and, you know, getting involved in food boxes and that sort of thing. So for both producers and consumers. Yeah, nice one. And uh, how do people get in touch with you? They can get in touch with me via hello at southernharvest.org.au. Nice one. Anything else you'd like to add before we wind up? Um, can't think of anything, but oh, I'd encourage everyone to think about where their food comes from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice one, nice one. Well, uh, Penny Coath from Southern Harvest, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. No worries. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.